Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 363. I hope you're all well. I hope you're all enjoying the podcasts in this new year and enjoyed all the podcasts of last year. This week's guest was fantastic, and I'm so glad that you're going to get to hear this because we almost, you almost didn't get to. Basically, we had some recording issues. And I was really worried because it was such a nice conversation. Like I really enjoyed it's my guest this week is Stacey Martin, who's got a load of things. I've since talking to her, I finished watching The Serpent, which was amazing. It's it's on iPlayer. I think it's gonna be on Netflix eventually, but it's on iPlayer. I I have guessed that. I may have misread that somewhere, but it's on iPlayer, know that. I'd also archive was if you heard my Films of the Year podcast a couple of weeks back, it was on the long list there because um, I really enjoyed that. The Nymphomaniac films, fantastic. Just so much good stuff that sh- she's been involved in. And we have such good conversation um, about it, or particularly Archive, because I was, I was fascinated by that. We touch upon it, but Duncan Jones is a bit of a master of uh, of, gr- of grubby sci-fi, I guess I would describe it as. And I'm a fan of it. I like I like all sorts of sci-fi, but it's always weird when it's so polished and so clean. And I like the more realistic, your Blade Runner looking stuff. And Gavin Ruffery, who did Archive, absolutely nails that. He worked on Moon as well, so there's 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 a connection there. I'm rambling. I'm rambling. We get into all of this. As I said, we had some t- some technical issues, but thankfully, Buddy Peace is the best producer in the known land. So um, he's managed to polish it all up and sound lovely. So no problems at all there. I was worried, yeah, because basically we, I thought we weren't going to be able to use the audio and we wanted to reschedule, but my schedule has gone through the roof recently. So it was looking like we weren't going to be able to reschedule either. And I was like, this sucks because number one, it's bad to lose a lovely conversation. But number two, I want to shout about this actor and this human because we, again, we have some really good conversations about her life and her unusual circumstances that I really think inform her as 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 an artist and from what I've met here as a as a as a human. So yeah, I'm glad you got to hear this, or you're gonna get to hear this. So let's just let you get to hear it, eh? This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 363, with Stacey Martin. I've started recording as well now. That's great. Well, great. I mean, let's get straight into it. Um, I'm joined today by Stacey Martin. How are you? I'm good. I'm really happy to be able to have a conversation about film and not about Christmas or the state of the world. So, yeah, it's kind of a weird one, right? Where are you mentally at the moment? Are you okay? Are you well? Aside from podcasts, it's good to be checking in on everyone in that way because... It's been a year where people can be all over the bloody place. Yeah, I'm okay. I think I really underestimated how hard it was going to be on the long term. And also, I think winter coming in and, and having to be at home and Christmas being cancelled in London, it, it's definitely a difficult time. But I am very blessed to have people I love around me and no one I know was... Um, well, I, I know a few people who've had COVID, but no one has had it badly. Yeah. Well, well, that's 
good. What about you? Uh, to know, yeah, all good, s- similar. There's loads of restrictions and changes, but I'm aware that there's loads of people who have it far, far worse. So it's all that kind of riding it out and s- seeing how it all all pans out at the other end. Um, but but one of the things I've enjoyed during this kind of weird lockdown on, lockdown off, just kind of staying in lockdown because I don't know what I'm meant to be doing. So it's just easier to just just stick yeah. with it. Just stay. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but it was archive. I really in, enjoyed it. I'd been excited about it f- for a while because me and, and, and Gavin uh, Rothery uh, uh, talk a bit on, t- on Twitter and I saw when he was posting early kind of concept art and stuff. And I'm just a fan of his his brain. So I was curious as to what it would be and how it would all come out so how was it to kind of to work on because you get to play uh, the basic brief synopsis is um theo james is playing a character who is trying to uh, take the next the step in ai and robotics as such he's trying to build an ai robot that has his wife his wife who's passed away inside it and there's no spoilers there right that's kind of that's pretty much set up from the start. Yes, yeah, no spoilers there. It's hard to talk about a film where you want people to experience it without any spoilers or yeah. or stuff like that. Um, and yeah. I think Gavin, I mean, he loves science fiction so much yeah. that you could really feel it from the get-go in the script. And a lot of little elements in the script were hints at films that he loved or images that he loved in cinema. And it was just so great to kind of explore his mind. Yeah. I mean, when I met him for the first time, he spoke nonstop for about an hour. And to have someone who can talk so passionately yeah. along and then go, oh, I'm so sorry, please let's work together. And I thought, yeah, I can't, I can't say no now. It's, it's got to be a beautiful thing, right? Because as an actor, one of the great tools and advantages is a director who knows what they want and has a has a clear vision. Do you know what I mean? So, so it's not kind of a muddied water and kind of too vague. So to have someone who's that passionate and excited about it... Yes, absolutely. M- ...must have been a bit of a, wow, this is, this is going to be a joy. <laughs> you tell me where to go. You point me in, that, in the right... <laughs> the, the, direction and we'll and we'll go mm. I think Gavin in a sense he was so knowledgeable but also so clear about what he wanted visually with yeah. this film and how what color our zippers would be what color the door handles would be what shapes the robots would be that when we got to set what was really interesting is that he actually gave us a lot of freedom in terms of our performances yeah. and it was almost like because he was seeing everything come together his vision was there, so we were able to kind of build on everything that he'd hoped and everything that he set out and then take all of that and create something even bigger than what he'd hoped, I think. And, yeah. I mean, I hope we have. <laughs> but it's, it's for me, it was such a specific job as well because I'd never been in a science fiction film, so all the intricacies that that entails it was it was a real it was a real challenge but it was also a real discovery yeah because it's it's the the, your role 
it's going to have been really like physically restrictive and and things like that along the way because 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 your character is is essentially being built as as the story goes on so i guess how was that to decide where to take you your performance because when restrictions are put on you you then have to kind of be careful not to push too hard against them and 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 go too far and also i think again i thought all the performances were amazing including the different robots which were some of the most emotional and, and, and 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 relatable characters i've seen but again because of sci-fi being such a genre it's easy to jump straight to here's how i play a robot here's the ai voice and all these things and i think this film avoided all of that so so what was was your approach to making sure you weren't just going here's the robot voice or here's the here's amazon alexa essentially yeah What, what was your approach to 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 finding the right tone i guess and 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 working within those restrictions. Yeah. Oh God, Alexa. <laughs> um, well, I think, I mean, from the start, I was very clear that I wanted to avoid all of those cliches, especially because yeah. we wanted this film to be a surprise in every respect. And the incredible thing is that the two first robots, J1 and J2, have actual people inside them it's not CGI. A lot of there's very yeah. little special effects in this film, and that was something Gavin was very, very adamant yeah. about. And so it helped avoid all of this. Oh, this is a robot. This is what they do. It became very humanized. And there are scenes in the film that I hadn't realized while we were filming them. Just how heartbreaking the two robots are. There's a scene with J two, mm-hmm. and I just poured my heart out because I found it so upsetting and we're just looking at a metal box ultimately but it's there was something yeah. about yeah. having someone inside those costumes moving made immediately you, we could have empathy and we could relate and then when it came to my impersonation of, of Jules um, as a robot in J3 that really only came when I started putting the costume on. And I quickly realized that actually the restrictions imposed by this costume were restrictions that she felt as well. It's probably one of the most intense costumes I've, I've ever worn. My whole body, apart from my legs, was completely covered. I couldn't really hear because I have those sort of earmuffs. I could barely see. I could breathe, thankfully. But I also couldn't move my face in most of it. So then it became about how do how wow. does J3 communicate and how does she move? Because everything is restricted. And how does that make her feel? And it's not that she's playing a robot who's stuck. She's for her, she's really it's almost someone kind of remembering something that they'd forgotten. Like if you had a night out and you blacked out and then suddenly pieces slowly come back. That's sort of what she she's experiencing. Yeah, yeah. And so for me, it was really all about the costumes because they helped so much to immediately catapult me in J3. I mean, there were days where I couldn't even sit. I, I, it was, I mean, I was definitely at my grumpiest at some points on that set, but it 
kind of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it I kind of fueled the character and and I think it's also a challenge that every actor has and it doesn't have to be through costume but you have to use what is presented to you and not go against it because then hmm. you're just not in the present and for J3 she's trying to figure out what's going on and there were some days I was trying to figure out what was going on because I couldn't hear anybody I was just stuck I was not moving everyone was doing stuff I'm like hey guys I'm still here just let me know (laughs) (laughs) that's mad I'm I'm always I'm fascinated by how as actors or, or, or what we learn as actors in one role that then sticks with us and translates in future roles. Do you feel there was anything that you got from those those restrictions that that you can take on or have taken on? Because again, I think when you have the freedom to do anything you want with your face or your body or anything else, then again, like one of the major problems early on in scenes is when you don't know what you should be doing, so you have to find something to do. Again, you tend to learn that it's best to not do anything then like rather than force it but yeah it's it's it sounds like it must it it will have been a good experience for you to kind of go right Mm. look what I've done with all those restrictions on without the ability to move my face or to move my my body yet I got the emotion across still so has that stuck with you and, and gone on to other things I think in a way it has because it really for me cemented the fact that there was no escape and my my prep and my work and and the work that we that we were doing on set with Gavin and with Theo James, I could immediately feel when I hadn't done enough or if I was slacking a little bit or if it was too close to lunchtime and I was getting grumpy, like silly things, really silly things sometimes, <laughs> and to really feel it because I was so restricted that everything was very obvious. And I think it kind of made it very clear just how important my own homework and my own kind of grounding in in that prep is. I also think I very naively underestimated how much I actually move. I think I always Mm. assumed that I was a fairly still sort of subtle human being, but it turns out that I'm kind of all over the place. And it was kind of really interesting to go oh no, if I just don't move my arms, that says something rather than gesticulating like a crazy Italian person. Yeah. So it's just small things like that. I mean, I, yeah, I think that would be, that would be my answer. It's amazing learning what the camera picks up because as said, you can, in your performance, so much is got across with so little, if you know what I mean. There's, there's, you can get the intent and, I found it really interesting what you were saying there was when you knew either it was, was close to lunch or you were tired or grumpy and you knew you weren't g- g- giving what was needed because all of that is mm. internal. It's not that, that you weren't giving what you needed physically, it, but because you weren't there mentally, it comes across on camera somehow. And that's just magical to me. That is, I find that absolutely mm. f- fascinating. So, yeah, how that must have been an interesting one to kind of, watch things back or I said no on the day right I need to they can tell that my mind is wandering you know yeah I think especially for scenes that are demanding or scenes that you know require a certain level of emotion whether it's happiness or sadness or anger whatever it is 
for me and the way that I, I want to work, I think it is really vital that when I watch something that I've done, I lose myself in it. And yeah. I don't think, oh, that was the day that we were running late because and this happened. Yeah. Or, oh, this was the day where um, someone tested positive for COVID yeah. or things like that. Because I, for, it's always attached to the experience of shooting, but I can see it in my face. And I think obviously we're overcritical of our own performances. But I do think we can we can read a human face more than we think. And that's the beauty of cinema because yeah. it's so expressive. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's There's such a big... It, or that is the key difference between cinema and theatre, I think, because theatre has mm. to be bigger because you have to be playing to the, the back row as well as the front row. Whereas with TV or cinema, it, everyone is the front row. Everyone can catch those nuances mm. and those moments and those and those feelings um speaking of 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 performance and approach am i right that you when you studied acting you were going under under or using the meisner technique um Mm. a fair bit how was that in this because meisner is so much about reading the person opposite you and the people you're in the scene with rather than focusing on yourself and as you've said you had, had restrictions on your hearing at times you had restrictions on your vision. How was that to get that connection with Theo and things things like that when you can't necessarily see him as well as you might have wanted to or or or, or planned to? I mean, it was definitely at the beginning quite a surprise and I, I kind of realised as well how much I rely on just the obvious things of having someone in front of me. Yeah. But it made, it made me have to be very perceptive and very sort of almost just kind of, I would almost have to, sometimes I would just not focus on how Theo was talking to me, but his body language, because I couldn't quite grasp fully what he was saying. And so that was frustrating. So I would have to focus fully on his body and how it was moving. Um, And other times it was the opposite. Other times, because I couldn't move and I was stuck, he was moving around me. So I had to focus only on his voice. Yeah. and it's almost it almost kind of heightens that sense. But I think Meisner was definitely a help, a, a sort of crucial training trick yeah. that I had because it, it it's it forced me to kind of go to not be frustrated about not seeing or not hearing and just go, okay, what do I have? What are the things that are available to me? Yeah. And use that. And actually, you can get a lot from it. And there's no reason to panic. There's no reason to get grumpy or or whatever. It's just everything is there for you to take if you're open to how it it is around you, I think. I love that. And it's it's interesting because, as you mentioned earlier, with the character has the same restrictions or or your physical restrictions as the actor Mm -hmm. are similar to the character. That comes across as well because there was points where there's such a childlike kind of panic or curiosity in your character's eyes to see what's going on. But again, that's that that rings true of you saying that you were kind of having to try and read body movements and things, things like that at points. But also the character would have that. The character w- would be kind of intrigued by everything because it is... It's a child as much as it's an AI, if you know what I mean. It's As you, you said, mm. it's learning everything. It's taking everything in as, as it goes. So, yeah, I love when things like that when you can go, yeah, rather than go, well, here's my restrictions, it's a nightmare, instead going, mm. how are these restrictions s- 
similar to the character's restrictions or how is this discomfort mm. similar to the character's discomfort? And that, yeah, that came across amazingly. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. It's just, it's, you know, you always have a sense of, you have an intuition about something or a way of working and, and, and you have to make a decision as well when you're on set. You have to make quick decisions. Sometimes you've worked on those decisions a long time before with the director and with the other actors. Yeah. And sometimes you're just confronted with something. It's a last minute change. Your costume's malfunctioned or it's another actor or, you know, anything. And you have to just in that moment go, okay, what am I deciding? Yeah. I mean, it can sound quite daunting, but that's the fun part of acting, I think. That's when, you know, magic happens. And I think maybe it's closer to what people have on stage in theatre because the cinema's a lot more controlled, but it's that moment of just going for it and just hoping for the best. Yeah. And, and solving problems in the moment, I think, is always just yeah. such a buzz. In the, It's the most mm. tense and kind of scary bit, but at the end of that day, you're like, yes, Stuff didn't yeah. go exactly as planned, but we got yeah. it, and that's that's the most rewarding day. We got it. Um, exactly. I think in those situations, it helps to have absolute faith in the people you're working with, and mm-hmm. Archive looks beautiful, and I think Laurie Rose is one of the best DOPs mm-hmm. in the game, and you'd worked with him before on High Rise, right? Which is another, again, yes. a visually st- 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 stunning, futuristic image. So... Did that give you some kind of confidence and and relaxation to know that what you're putting out there will be captured and will be captured right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because it was such a jump as well for me to go into that film, to play a robot in that way, and and also to work with a first-time director. I had instincts and and, and sort of thoughts about Gavin from the get-go. I thought he was incredible, but sometimes stuff goes wrong and... To know that he was surrounded by people, not only that I work with, but people that I do admire professionally, it it is exciting. And a film like Archive, it needs to be visual. It needs to be exciting for the audience to watch, even if it's just a simple pan down the corridor. And I think Laurie really understands just what the narrative is and how to make it stick to not only the narrative, but the director's vision. Because his work is quite different from high rise to to Completely. archive, for yeah, example, yeah. and 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 it's it's hard because it's not all DOPs are able to really adapt that much to to directors that they work with. And it, I mean, it, again, it, it hadn't even occurred to me really that it was a directorial debut because mm. it's a, b- a bold choice for a directorial debut, isn't it? You you g- 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 generally go in on a directorial debut how simple and like it'll have to be a, gr- a gritty story that you can kind of shoot you know relatively <laughs> easy whereas yeah I, I, Gavin sat down and went right we're going to build a whole world we're going to build all of these these robots it, it's a specific <laughs> visual so mm. how rewarding was that to see the finished product like as as you said it's it's it is always that kind of you do the job and then you move on and it's out of your hands then. Mm. And that's magnified with sci-fi, I'd imagine. And this was your first time doing sci-fi. So there would have been so much that you didn't know how it's going to translate or how it's going to look. So how was that when you did finally Mm. get to see that and go, oh, that's the world that we were living in? It was really exciting. But also we had a lot 
available. The whole set, yeah. the station um, in Japan was built. So all the interiors are real, they're life-size. So we knew a lot from the get-go, but there's definitely an element of how is this all going to be one film? And what I was just so amazed about when I was watching it is just how smooth it all felt. And you can really feel Gavin's love for sci-fi and love for technology because there's as much really advanced technology that maybe doesn't exist today. And then there's really old school technology where stuff doesn't really work and it's a bit clunky. And I loved seeing all of that. It wasn't like you said, you know, like a, a, a typical first feature, British first feature. And that's what also excited me. I have nothing against the gritty um, social realism um, cinema at all, but there's a lot of it. And I find, I think it's a shame that young directors think that that's the only availability for them when there's sci-fi, there's horror, there's, I mean, I think horror and sci-fi is is, is kind of slowly popping up a bit more, but for so long you would just read first features and it would be the story of a working class woman who'd been raped and, you know, and, and those are stories that are important to tell, but after a bit, I'm like, what about robots and the end of the world or yeah, it kind of, for me, was quite exciting to see, you know, just how English Gavin was yeah. and how not English his film was in a, in a really silly way. I couldn't agree more because I think you're completely right and it's it's particularly in England that those those kind of the grit... Because England does the gritty working-class drama so well. So well. But again, it, it, it shouldn't be all we do. Same with period stuff. It shouldn't just be mm. period or, or or gritty drama. It should there should be everything in between. And I think you're right. It's yeah. It sh- it sh- shines through that Gavin worked on things like Moon and has worked with because mm. Duncan Jones has always done that kind of that futuristic look that looks futuristic but is realistic as well. That things aren't working and things are broken because it wasn't until I saw a few films like that that I thought. How come in all futuristic stuff, everything is brand new and shiny? You wouldn't just tear everything down each time you build something new. There would be all the developments, and mm. that comes across in this, that kind of the battered-up old old bits of equipment as well as the the shiny new advances in technology. Yeah, and I loved that. I love the fact that, you know, the, the J1 and J2, for example, are really clunky robots. They're big. Uh, J1 is a little bit, you know, she doesn't have any arms and she can't really vocalise, she just does sounds. And it's really simple in terms of technology, but I loved that. And I think Gavin, you know, it's definitely a nod to the films that he was watching when he was a kid. And one of the first films he told me to watch was Back to the Future because I'd never seen it before. And he was shocked absolutely shocked and I was like I'm and I'd never seen someone being so disappointed at my lack of um science fiction knowledge so I had to really quickly go and watch all of the series it was great yeah amazing I I love that so so what were you watching when you were growing up because you moved around a lot right in Mm. your in your upbringing you were you born in France and then lived or was it in Japan and then and then in England yeah, so I, I was, yeah. So, yeah, how was that? And, and how did that influence your tastes, I guess? Oh, it, it was definitely, 
I'm realizing it more now because I think growing up, I was in, I was born in Paris and grew and spent sort of my formative years in Japan, in Tokyo. And when I moved to London when I was 18, I hadn't quite no, realized that my culture references were all over the place. And there were a lot of things that I didn't yeah, actually I know about. I didn't know about, I just recently discovered a band called Steps which apparently is was a very big pop <laughs> English, yeah. British. Yeah, yeah. They kind of came on and they did their revival. And I was just like, what? I, I like, for me, it's just a big gap. But I did a sort of very, Amazing. I had a very sort of, I guess, classical upbringing in terms of the films that I watched. And it was very much a lot of Cartoon Network and, I loved the Pink Panther and then I had also a lot of Japanese anime going in there. So it was, yeah. it was sort of like, for me, my references is like Princess Mononoke or Doraemon. And it wouldn't be, I never played Pokemon actually, because that came out when I yeah. was back in France and I was like, Oh no, nuts Pokemon. Um, yeah, it was just all over the place and I'm still catching up to be honest. like back to the future. I hadn't watched that. And I'm sure there's a lot more that, that yeah. I hadn't watched. And I only really discovered British cinema in the last five years. And it was the most exciting thing to suddenly go, wow, I've really missed out on so much. But here we go. Let's watch all of these films. Let's discover Lynn Ramsey and Ken Loach. And, you know, that just wasn't my, yes. it just wasn't in my DNA, which is just abysmal. But yeah. Corrected. <laughs> I love it though. I love it because because I think it's it's such an unusual path because outside of the big American blockbusters that are are, are so known and such a known mm. style of film, f French cinema, Japanese cinema, and British cinema are the three that jump out to me as having such mm. so their own styles and such standout styles. French cinema. I've always adored how much space they give to things and how much time, how it's not kind of in the American way, it's very much, but here's my line and here's my line and here's my line and we're on to the next scene and we're going over there. And this, Whereas in France, in, in so much of the French cinema I love, if someone, for, as an easy example, is going to someone's front door, they will walk through their gate, up their mm. path and go to the front door. Whereas in American cinema... The yeah. car door will open and they'll knock on the door. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's got that kind of cut. And then in Japan, there's an absolute comfort with almost the opposite of British cinema, of not needing to be rooted in reality all the time. You may spend half the film in reality, but then they will go, yeah. right, here's where we're going to go now. And I think in British and American cinema, there's too much panic over, over explanation and how everything has to have, here's mm. the beginning, middle and end, and here's the reason for all of it. It's like, well, no, that when you see a painting that you love, you don't go, well, here's the reason I love it. It's because of this, 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 and this. It's an emotional Personally. reaction. And I think J Japanese cinema and a lot of, of European cinema is better at that, at, at just being led by emotions rather than here's the, mm. the continuity person, making sure everything <laughs> adds up and is in the right order. So do you think that helped you in your approach and development as an artist? Because because as an actor, you've you've worked in such a variation of st mm. the styles of films. Do you think that has maybe come naturally because you didn't have as n n natural an upbringing in, in cinema? You didn't have 
the Back to the Futures and all yeah. the things that most young definitely, people have at that stage. Definitely, 100%. Sort of just, I think what excites me the most is doing different things, is working with different types of directors. Is I love feeling the adrenaline of discomfort and 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 sort of creative discomfort yeah. not you know there's obviously intense discomfort which is not not needed um but doing something different and i think if i read a script and i think oh i can't do this this isn't for me this is too hard that's when i should take it then the ones i go oh yeah. this would be lovely to do this would be great oh, and this would be this will put me in this place in my career and i'm like no this is not the right way to go. And I've, I really, for me, it's quite important to always do something different because I've always moved in my life. I've always gone on to the next thing. And I love that aspect of just discovering new directors, new actors, new ways of working. You know, Italian cinema is very close to French cinema, but the way that they work yeah. is completely different. And it's right. for me just so exciting to kind of go, okay, let's have Italian people talk to me in Italian for a whole day and think that I will be able to understand their direction. Great. That sort of, <laughs> I like, I like a challenge and I kind of, for me, I just don't, I don't really like feeling too comfortable. I think. I love that. Um, do you have a, a preference in, in working because you've done French language films and British and it, a year or two ago, when Almodovar came out with, with Pain and, and Glory and I watched Antonio Banderas' performance in that and was blown away and it occurred to me that Antonio Banderas had become kind of a very standard actor, like nothing bad, he didn't do anything bad, but he, mm. he, he wasn't someone you'd talk about for these amazing performances anymore. And then you realise mm. it's because we've been making him act in his second language all this time. And then as soon as he went back and did this this amazing film, I was like, oh my God, of course, he's was always one of the greats from Desperado and all these other things. He's amazing. So how do you find that with, with jumping languages, I guess? I quite like it. I quite like, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be bilingual and I've always spoken two languages. So in a way it's, it's not as difficult than if I was learning a new language. There's been the odd job where I've had to say stuff in another language and that's terrifying. Yeah. I, I, I just had it on, on, on the job I'm on. I just had that and it scared the life out of me. But being able to switch more between French cinema, which is very unique and, and totally focused on the director's vision, and then coming into something more, how would you say, constructed like English cinema or American cinema, for example. I love that. I love that freedom. It sort of makes it, more substantial for me i think yeah yeah and again it's good so few people have that freedom do you know what i mean like there's there's so much yeah. stuff like a series i've just been absorbing in this period has been B- babylon berlin and it's just it's bl- blown mm-hmm. me away it's a german series it's fantastic and i watch it and sit there annoyed it's like i can't hit my agents up about being involved in this because it's it's literally it's not an option to me it's a language I don't have so it must be interesting to have that much more yeah that many more doors potentially open I guess Mm. because you can drift between the two yeah you you spoke about the right levels of discomfort and that must be a fairly easy thing to to get your head around because you're kind of debut and breakout 
was with Lars von Trier, who's known to to push people. Again, from everything I've seen, the way he pushes people, it gets these amazing works of art. But how was that to kind of debut in in the Nymphomaniac films, which were it's working with an icon kind of off the bat, but it's also ones that ask a lot. It's a big, particularly as mm. your kind of first here I am. It's like wow, it's really you're right at the forefront. You're in the lead. There's a lot asked of you. How was that? Mm. And how was it kind of afterwards to be straight on press tours and everything else? Like generally with actors, you're doing a, a role in Casualty and then you're in the bill and then you might get a bigger role mm. here. Whereas you were yeah. straight onto here's the role and that's taxing enough. But then here's the promo mm. tour and everything else. How how was that as a, as a starting point? Wild, yeah. really wild. But I think also kind of, the actual shooting from for me didn't feel that crazy because I hadn't really set out to be an actor professionally. It was something that I loved, but I never really allowed myself to contemplate it as my job. Yeah. Because like you said, it's extremely competitive and it's really hard and it takes a lot of time. And I just, I didn't want to get jaded and I didn't want to fall out of love with it. So when this, job came along and and Lars offered me the role I sort of thought well for what it's worth if I don't do anything else I would have worked with one of probably the favorite director number one on my list and and it's the script also was just this crazy beautiful three or four hundred pages long just book it was just so beautifully written and, and and it just kind of felt very obvious that I was going to be a part of this and then it was only after shooting it when sort of everyone the press started talking about it and and there was a lot of tension before the film even came out and that for me was so surreal because what people were saying even before having seen the film was so different to the actual film yeah and to actually what what Lars was was setting out to to do so it was that for me was really weird and it sort of was was a crash course in kind of perception and and how how you have to really stick to your guns and if you're not you know if you're not doing a project that you're 100% behind then it, it must be so hard to then have backlash or have so many questions and and I kind of realized very quickly that I could only be an actor if I worked with with people and on projects that I really believe in because I don't have the mental capacity to defend something that I don't believe in. It's yeah. it's so it's such a cutthroat industry and I'm 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 you know as actors we're told to be vulnerable and receive a lot of stuff and then on the other side we're told well you're going to be rejected all the time tough enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's just like insane. Like it's kind of asking people to be schizophrenic almost. It, it it felt like it was the early days of something that's so common now of outrage before people have seen something, outrage about something before they've, yeah. they've seen it or heard it. And everyone talked about how much sex was in Nymphomaniac. No one talked about, about how much mm. f- fishing is in Nymphomaniac. I learned loads about f- fishing, g- genuinely fascinating stuff. <laughs> about how fishing yeah. works. Um, yeah, and trees as well. Yeah. There's a lot about trees. Completely. Oh, it, it's interesting because I was, I was talking to a friend the other day and there's <laughs> one particular part of Nymphomaniac has kept coming back to me during this pandemic, which, again, 
will sound weird to anyone because of how much sex it wasn't a sex scene um but <laughs> it's there's a point so the story essentially is about a woman who is as said an nymphomaniac so she's got this thing that's constantly at the front of her mind for better or worse often f- for better sometimes for worse and the yeah. way she deals with it her break from it at times is to walk this same path around a park and it's this repetitive loop and it's felt so relevant in the year that we've had because there is this thing the pandemic that's at the forefront of everyone's mind if you've got a phone near you or a tv near you and so many people i think aren't taking that step of going right because i i do it at at the moment i'm i'm filming a show in in vancouver and i've now got a, a set route i do pretty much every day, normally of an evening. Mm. And it is that kind of right. It's going to take, even if I'm not thinking about doom and gloom, I've got this set route that lets me reset and think about Mm. projects and music and art and creation. And I said, it it felt like a a really weird, prescient connection there. Have have you got anything that you kind of do to snap you out of these, these, these strange moments? Yeah, I go on walks as well. Yeah. I, I, I got a dog about a year and a half ago um, for that very reason. Amazing. What kind of dog is it? Uh, he's a border collie cross with a miniature poodle. Amazing. Um, but he's definitely more on the border collie side than anything else, which keeps me very busy. <laughs> um, but it was for that exact reason, because I needed something to focus or to to sort of pause all my anxiety and my distress and just to go this is a living being and I am the only one who can keep it alive yeah and on a very basic level you know you have to go out and you have to I have to walk him and there's something just very I think the routine of it is quite reassuring yeah when you know everything can be questioned or sort of cancelled you know that you have that one thing that you know is just for you and walking for me is something that is quite important. Yeah. And I kind of always feel quite revived afterwards. Yeah, completely. Or again, it's that I think one of the great things about dogs, the, the reason that they fit humans so, so well is you'll have exactly that. You'll go, right, this is a living being. It needs walking, it needs fresh air, it needs this exercise because you wouldn't have done that same analysis on yourself. Yeah. I'm a human being. Yeah. I need walking, fresh air, <laughs> yeah. exercise. Yeah. But and, and we do, and we should all be doing that for ourselves, but it's easier to project that upon a little adorable little creature and, and, and in turn it's making us look after ourselves a bit more. So, yeah. Definitely. I mean, I think also in terms of, you know, being actors or anyone in the creative industries, being freelance, we're constantly wondering when our next job is going to be or should we be working more should we be working less should we change the way that we work should we be going out and socializing more should we be networking should we change agents should we keep our agent there are so many questions that we can have in our minds and I think having things that bring you out of all of that that bring you out of the madness of the industry is just so vital um I mean, for me, it was just, yeah, it's for my sanity, to be honest. <laughs> Com- completely understand. Now, I, I normally leave it until the last, like, two minutes to ask what you've got ahead, but you've been really busy, so I'm going to get to that early because there's some good stuff coming. But before we get to that part, you <laughs> spoke about kind of starting with working with one of your favourite directors, an icon. 
you also got to work with Ridley Scott recently or a, a couple of years back. How was that? Because that's another absolute icon. Another film that was annoyingly tarnished with controversy before it came out because of the removal of, <laughs> of Kevin Spacey. So it's a weird thing that each time you get to, to work with <laughs> an icon, s- something gets dramatic in the press about it but how was that i think it's me i think i'm like the voodoo <laughs> yeah. doll that arrives on projects it's a strange just, coincidence that just it keeps yeah <laughs> um yeah no I, I i mean you know ridley scott is just like you said a real icon and when the part came along i thought wow what an amazing opportunity to observe yeah. Not only him, but also observe these incredible actors yeah. that I've grown up watching. And, you know, from Michelle Williams, from you know, Kevin Spacey, and then afterwards, obviously, um, the wonderful Christopher Plummer. For yeah. me, that was crazy. And all I could think of, I watched him, The Sound of Music, The Sound of Music, The Sound of Music. Yeah. It just, it just, there's something really fascinating when you you can just watch how the other person works and Ridley is so fantastic because he he's so precise and he has this edit room almost on the spot and he uses seven cameras so he he puts a camera on each person in the scene which means that you're totally free in terms of your performance yeah because he can match everything together and it's just, I mean, obviously he has the means to have seven cameras, but yeah. it was just such a different experience from being on a on an indie film where, you know, one camera is already a luxury. Yeah. And Ridley, I think his cinema is always epic. There's always this very grand vision. And what I liked about this one specifically is that it wasn't necessarily science fiction or it didn't have aliens. It was just on a real story. Yeah. And just the proportions of, that story, how he was going to translate that visually and cinematically for me, I've just, I was just really curious to observe. So I felt like I was a bit of a spy yeah. of some sort. Well, I mean, that leads perfectly in, in many ways on, on to, onto the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, is The Serpent, which is um, mm. it's, it's coming out. It, this podcast will be out in January, so it'll be out around now. It'll be starting it'll be, around oh, now. Oh, great. Um, I mean, as soon as I saw the kind of early stills and things like that, it looks cool as fuck as a, as a starting point. Like, it, it just looks slick. And a, a Taha Rahim, Unprofit, The Last Panthers, he's, he's done s- such good stuff. His body of work is amazing. So uh, t- mm. tell me about it a bit, I guess, and, and how was it to work on and what's the, the feel? Uh, it was so exciting. It was just one of those things where I, I'm obsessed with true crime, first yeah. of all. So for me, anything that involves sort of how someone gets caught and 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 all of that i'm right there but i'd already worked with Taha on a french film called um joueur and so i kind of i we we're very close friends now and i just knew how incredible it is to act with him because he is so talented and so generous in his performance and he pushes you as an actor he makes you better because He's generous, but he's also very demanding. And for me, that's the best kind of partner. And to suddenly, I, I, I'm not going to say exactly who I play because it would be a massive spoiler and you would hate me for it. Um, <laughs> but just knowing that I had this opportunity to, to play against him in that way was just so incredible. And he's 
just what he's done with this role is so transformative. I've never seen him in anything like this. And and the series as such as, like you said, it looks incredible and it really looks of that period, yeah. which is really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> I love it. The, the BBC have been involved in a few things recently that have been kind of either true crime stories or true crime feeling yeah. that are a little bit 70s or 80s or 60s. And it just, yeah, it's it seems to be something that they've... The, the, they know how to find the the right area and the right tone on or the right people to get it to, to get it right because mm-hmm. it looks yeah it looks great but well as we start to wrap things up yeah you've been working with Claire Foy with Bene- Benedict Cumberbatch R- R- Rebecca Hall with so many people you've been mm-hmm. really busy how's how's that been and how is it kind of contemplating how any of this gets released in this new kind of of world because there has been a lot of changes from when people are making films to when they're now on their way out and you're like I don't know I mean particularly with independent films it's always a mystery if they're gonna Mm. see the light of day as 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 such um absolutely so how is that and all of them I think have got film festival premieres and, and and love and support so it looks it looks positive but how is that to kind of have worked on all these things and now be waiting to see what happens, I guess. I mean, it's very strange. Um, again, coming back to, <clears throat> I think what I said earlier, it, I just didn't anticipate it being that devastating. Yeah. And not only are we looking now at films not coming out or coming out only on, on demand or, or digitally, that also means that there's a whole load of people working in the cinemas that are losing their jobs. Yeah. And for me, that's the hard part <clears throat> because I'm confident that the films that I've made will be seen at some point and it's a question of patience. And I hope that cinemas stay open and I hope that people are still able to go to the cinema when everything sort of gets better. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's also a question of... Uh, films still being made and I was on something that got shut down in the middle of production and so we all had to go home yeah and that's devastating um so to even just know that I have a few films coming out I have a French film that's going to come out in January it's it's kind of you really value um the chance and the opportunity that that these so far in touch with that they are coming out because who knows I completely agree, and I think it's so, mm. so important. I was really pleased to see, in the last couple of days, a few of my favourite cinemas in the UK have got gr- grants and funding. The Prince Charles mm. Cinema, the G- Genesis, have both been given some kind of funding and support because it is important, and I think yeah. there's a side of this industry that is money-based. Obviously, there's a huge part that is art-based, but there's a side that's money-based, and the side that's money-based, understandably, is pivoting towards TV at the moment because of what's going on mm. and because of cinemas not being a thing anymore. And I understand that, but that can't be the way th- things go, right? We can't stop mm. having films, essentially, because it's such an important part of our art and our culture. And as you say, the cinemas themselves, I, it's my favourite experience, you know, I spoke of yeah, going through. Yeah. I spoke of going for a walk, but if the cinemas are open, th- that's where I go to to yeah. absorb, to get inspired, to get not as an escape, as an addition to my life, to add to me, mm-hmm. not kind of not even have to distract me, but enrich 
everything that I'm I'm, I'm experiencing. So, so yeah, it's it's a weird time, but hopefully, as said, yeah, when yeah. we come out of it, there'll be a hunger to get in the cinema. But because I know I'm checking, mm. I've got a cinema literally <laughs> opposite me where I'm staying now, and every Monday I'm really? checking any updates on if they're open yet because. Yeah out here it is handled better at the moment and there's lower cases mm-hmm. and i'm like come on let's yeah, just open, just open those like, gates like, <laughs> i've got my visor i'll wear a visor You're ready. I'll, I'll, I'll sit in the cinema yeah. nice and safe let's uh, let's make it happen yeah but that's also one of the crazy things is when you see the way that i mean especially i think out, out in france or in england i think it's quite similar where people are allowed to go shopping and they can go and you know buy jeans and chocolates and whatnot yeah where there's no social distancing there's you know some people aren't even wearing masks the it's overcrowded yeah. and you see cinemas where the crowd can be controlled people will wear masks and it's a totally safe environment and that isn't open and for me that's really frustrating and just shows just how undermined culture is in in yeah. our society and how we really underestimate how important it is i think thankfully tv has really evolved over the last few years and when you look at you know just how important netflix or bfi iplayer or um, movie for example have been in these days it kind of luckily the state of artistic television is so high at the moment yeah. that there are still good projects you know to, to be a part of and, and I think it's it's gonna change and develop in the next few years again but gosh it's yeah <laughs> it's not a very positive note to end on is it's it it's scary isn't it but again but I, think, I am hopeful I think that's it I think it is positive because it's showing that there is demand for it there are people who are passionate about it and 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 it's it's needed it's not just as the government will often see it, a bottom line mm-hmm. on a, a, a financial statement of sorts. Again, you, you, if you if you open, if you keep next open, then they can make mm. loads more than a screening of a amazing film. So yeah, it's it's re- realizing that there's more to it than the bottom line. But yeah, I can't wait for them all to be back open. And again, or, or the positive note would be looking at countries like mm. Australia where. They did a, a very strict lockdown and they're back to almost normal now. They have to have mm. masks, I think, on public transport and yeah. inside things like cinema, but you're allowed into these things and you're allowed to events, you're allowed in shops and all these things are, it's far more back mm-hmm. to normal. So we can get there if it's handled correctly, <laughs> I guess. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that, that's the message at the end of it. It's if we all take it seriously, then we'll yeah. get back to normal yeah. far sooner. yeah that is the the good note well thank you very much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure and it's flown by so yeah thank you very much thank you i've really enjoyed this thank you You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Stacey Martin. Aren't, aren't you glad that we managed to revive that conversation? As, again, shout out to the best producer in the game, Buddy Peace. He saved that and made it sound beautiful. And shout out to Stacey Martin for, for giving me her time and offering to re-record the podcast as well. What a beautiful human. 
Thank you for tuning in. As ever, you can support the podcast over at patreon.com slash peer if you want. It's only a dollar um, a month. We do all sorts of things over there. Often I don't do anything over there. Be warned of that. But in December, for example, we did a load of one-on-one Zoom calls. They're over now. Who knows if we'll do more? I don't really plan these things. But also I put up 12 video episodes of the podcast. Um, So yeah, if you'd rather, if you'd like to see our faces on Zoom, go over and have a look at some of them. Um, And you can head to speechdevelopmentrecords.com for uh, all your merch goods. So loads of stuff there. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, stay safe, stay sane, and please stay sexy. Yeah, I'll see you next week. Ta-ta.